You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Padna. And uh, today I'm joined by Shannon Tiazzi, our editor-in-chief and chief China hand. Thanks for joining me, Shannon. How are you? Good. Always a pleasure to join you. Great. And I'm also joined by Prashant Parmesran, my uh, usual co-host and our resident Southeast Asia and U.S. policy watcher. How's it going, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Great. I'm uh, glad to have you both on today to uh, talk over a bit more about Donald Trump's uh, policy or lack thereof for the Asia Pacific. Uh, so I know it's been a while since we did a podcast, and I apologize for that. Uh, there was a little bit of traveling. I was actually in Japan when Shinzo Abe was in Trump Tower meeting with Donald Trump. Uh, but the good news is that in the few weeks that we haven't done the podcast, we have a few more data points to talk about from the Trump side of the equation here. Um, so just to lay out what this podcast is going to be about. So as some of you might know from reading The Diplomat or the news more broadly, Donald Trump's been taking a lot of congratulatory calls from moral leaders, and uh, some of these have been more notable than others. So the big one as we do this podcast is Trump's call last Friday with President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan, uh, which is essentially unprecedented since uh, Ronald Reagan's days. Uh, Reagan very early in his presidency, considered renormalizing relations with Taiwan. But uh, really, it was Jimmy Carter who made the big push the button on uh, switching U.S. diplomatic ties from the Republic of China to the People's Republic of China. Uh, so apart from talking about that call, we'll also talk a bit about Donald Trump's interesting conversation with Nawaz Sharif, which the Pakistanis helpfully provided a very colorful readout of. And we'll also talk a bit about Trump's outreach to, to Duterte. And I'm sure a lot more will come up in this call. Um, and really, there are no better people to have here for this discussion than Prashant and Shannon. So I'm really looking forward to this. All right. So let's jump into this Taiwan call, which has uh, really, you know, stirred up quite a bit of commentary from all sides of the foreign policy aisle on Taiwan. So, um, you know, all three of us have actually written about this call. So um, I think this will be an interesting conversation. But, you know, just in ways of background, like I, I very briefly mentioned the context um, of the last time the United States and Taiwan maintained formal diplomatic ties. But obviously, there's a lot more to this. Uh, you know, you have the Taiwan Relations Act, which sets up relations between the United States, uh, led by Congress with the Taiwanese people. Um, but, you know, I think what's important here, and I think what really we are well positioned to do at The Diplomat is to talk a bit about the Asian side of this equation. So what are the Asian countries thinking in their outreach to Donald Trump? Obviously, um, as we saw with China's reaction to both the Trump call, uh, both from Foreign Minister Wang Yi's statement and also the Foreign Ministry press conference, I think there's a real sense that the Chinese Foreign Ministry just has been caught very off guard by Trump. Um, but Shannon, I want to turn it over to you a bit. Uh, you know, can you just kind of give us the important context that I think has been missing in a lot of coverage of this Taiwan call? So obviously, Taiwanese politics in the past year have seen quite a bit of change. Uh, you've had, you know, a change in government from the government of Ma Ying-jeou and the KMT, who used to get along a lot better with China, to the DPP under Tsai Ing-wen. So there's obviously a lot to talk about here, but could you just give us a brief crash course on what's happened in Taiwan, how China has treated the new government of Tsai Ing-wen, and you, know, you can also hit on something like the 1992 consensus, which is pretty important to understanding the cross-strait situation today. Sure. Um, so basically, Tsai Ing-wen is um, a member of the Democratic Progressive Party, which is often described as a, a pro-independence party. Um, you know, I would quibble with that wording, but that the general sense is that this is a party that values unique Taiwanese identity, um, although not all of its members openly would advocate for independence, obviously. So Beijing is very mistrustful of the DPP. Uh, the 
party that's currently the opposition, the Kuomintang or KMT, actually originated on mainland China. Um, you know, Chiang Kai-shek of the KMT was the ruler of China itself during World War II uh, before he was forced to leave for Taiwan in the Chinese Civil War. So the KMT is a very strong tie to the mainland and to the One China policy uh, that the DPP, which originated on Taiwan, does not have. So basically, Beijing decided to frame any potential relationship with Taiwan um, according to the 1992 consensus, which basically sees both Taiwan and mainland China agree that there is only one China, um, while kind of fudging the question of which government is the actual representative of that China. So Taiwan can say, it's us, the Republic of China, and Beijing can say, it's us, the People's Republic of China. Um, Tsai was not able to do this uh, for domestic political reasons. A lot of her supporters would have been very angry if she had openly embraced the 1992 consensus. She went about as far as she could in terms of making a compromise, but she didn't say the words, I accept the 1992 consensus. So we found out a few months after her inauguration that on May 20th, the day Tsai officially assumed office, Beijing unilaterally cut off uh, all communications across the Taiwan Strait, which, as you mentioned, had really developed quite considerably under the previous president, uh, the KMT's Ma Ying-jeou. Right. There was a uh, historic this, meeting between Ma and Xi, which I think really showed right. how China saw the KMT, right? Right. Yeah. In November, um, you know, it considered to be a, China's way of signaling, this is how good cross-strait relations can be. If you guys play ball with us, um, you don't want to know what the alternative is, right? Uh, it was widely seen as an attempt to influence, if not the election, because Tsai was always leading so heavily in the polls, then at least Tsai's behavior once taking office. Um, part of this, the part that factors in directly to the Tsai Trump phone call, is that Beijing has also been really putting a squeeze on international space for Taiwan. Um, before Tsai even took office, China officially recognized the Gambia, which had been a diplomatic ally of Taiwan. Um, now the Gambia unilaterally broke off that relationship while Ma Ying-jeou was still in office uh, before the election. But Beijing refused to recognize it. You know, they, there was a so-called diplomatic truce where neither China nor Taiwan were poaching each other's diplomatic allies under Ma. After the election, Beijing recognized the Gambia, um, signaling this diplomatic truce might be off the table. Mm -hmm. You also had Taiwan didn't receive an, an invitation to ICAO, uh, which had, it had been invited to the International Civil Aviation Organization meetings as an observer in the past. Um, and so clearly Beijing is trying to put a squeeze on Taiwan's international space. So from Taiwan's perspective, reaching out to the Trump transition team and getting this phone call is a huge coup for them to show, hey, we're not as isolated as you want us to be, China. Um, and, you know, I think the mood on Taiwan, I'm obviously not there right now, but from what I've been able to ascertain from across the world is is pretty jubilant. Um, the media is pretty universally celebratory of this move. Even the KMT, the opposition, has thanked Trump uh, for being such a loyal friend to Taiwan. So, yeah, the Taiwanese are definitely seeing this as a victory. Awesome. That was a great, a great summary of, I think, a lot of the context that's very relevant here. 
Um, I mean, the point that I made when I wrote about this, Shannon, is that, uh, you know, all of these forces that you've been talking about, you know, Taiwanization, China's constant kind of interference in Taiwanese politics by essentially signaling that if you want good ties with the mainland, and, you know, that also translates into economic prosperity for Taiwan, which has really been struggling, you know, economic growth rates under 1% with 40% of its economy representing 70% of its GDP and trade um, exposed to China. You know, China's essentially been pressuring Taiwan to say, look, you have to essentially vote for the KMT if you want to maintain good relations. But obviously that didn't happen. So as you correctly said, the cost benefit here for Taiwan is just so clearly positive uh, with uh, Donald Trump coming into office. Um, very briefly, though, I want to talk about the U.S. policy side of this. Um, you know, I mean, as you as you correctly noted, I mean, here you have this island uh, democracy, a liberal democracy of 24 million, potentially the first place in the Asia Pacific to, you know, legalize same sex marriage. It's a very, you know, forward looking democratic polity. So a lot of people in the United States correctly, you know, correctly make the point that why aren't the United States and Taiwan closer? Is U.S. policy towards Taiwan fundamentally outdated? Is, I mean, you know, one of the unfortunate realities since 1979 is that Taiwan has essentially been subject to the whims of these two great powers that have developed a very comprehensive bilateral agenda between them. Uh, you know, that has obviously put U.S. policy towards Taiwan in a bit of a bind, where obviously the United States isn't going to back Taiwan militarily if there's independence. It's also agreed, you know, not to support uh, unification or acknowledge Chinese sovereignty over the island, leaving that question open to the Chinese under the six assurances that were finalized under Reagan. Uh, Prashant, I was hoping to you know, draw you in a bit here since, uh, you know, you watch U.S. policy here very closely. Um, you know, based on your reading of the Trump side, you know, I want to be careful about getting too much into the Kremlinology of who's who exactly is driving uh, Trump here. And, you know, I mean, we saw recent reports that uh, Bob Dole is involved in this call, apparently. But, you know, what is your sense of where Trump's you know, cloud of advisors, leaving that as amorphous as possible, is uh, trying to steer U.S.-Taiwan policy, and how might that, uh, and how might that play out in the close term? Yeah, so I, I think uh, if you look at uh, the the debate in Washington about uh, U.S.-China and relations between the U.S. and China and U.S. and Taiwan, uh, folks have been debating the degree to which the U.S. needs to and can rebalance its ties between both China and Taiwan for decades, right? So this is it's not a new debate. Um, and of course, it happened within the bounds of, you know, sort of the, the decades old one China policy. Um, it's a very polarizing and controversial subject. And I think, to a degree, a lot of the commentary that we've seen come out uh, in the United States about Taiwan and, and Trump's phone call reflects this rather old debate in Washington, rather than any sort of new policy proposals um, or any substantive debates in that sense. You've seen a lot of uh, debates about, you know, sort of decades-old uh, disagreements being rehashed. Um, I think in terms of concrete policy, uh, if you look at past administrations coming in, uh, it's taken about a year or so before they're able to get uh, policy towards specific regions in order. And in Trump's case, you know, depending on how things pan out, you know, he, he doesn't even have a complete cabinet yet, right? So, and with respect to his advisors, um, the key question for me, the key variable is the degree to which mainstream Republicans who may have previously been never Trump or would have been unwilling to serve now come back in to serve the administration. Because I think that would ease uncertainties among some folks that if you don't have seasoned hands working on uh, Asia policy, uh, you might have uh, sort of these fringe advisors trying to hijack U.S. policy more generally. So you need steady, experienced hands to guide it. Um, I think this will probably happen, uh, but it's going to take some time for all this 
uh, to play out in a policy sense. Um, I think the key, though, um, Shannon alluded to this before, you know, it's still very early days. Um, Taiwan uh, and the Taiwanese reaction to the call has been quite positive. But I think that the, the Taiwanese will be very careful uh, that they see and get specific things from the United States in terms of how to advance the relationship before they make decisions on how they want to move forward, right? So, I mean, there's very specific things that have been talked about between the U.S. and China before in terms of pursuing better economic relations. But once Trump actually takes office, I mean, keep in mind, all this is happening when he's president-elect. Once he takes office, um, Beijing may want to signal very early on, um, and it's signaling a little bit now, but it's been quite moderate and restrained because Trump's not in office. It may want to signal that, you know, if Trump tries to do something with respect to Taiwan, there might be consequences. And you've seen the Chinese do this before. Um, and essentially the question is, for the Chinese is, can they force the Americans to eventually concede the point that when they're forced to choose, the Americans will not try to disrupt uh, the relationship with China, and it's not going to sacrifice that for Taiwan. And I think that's essentially the question, the key question moving forward for U.S. policy. Right. We talk a lot in general about how to rebalance things, but that really is the, the crux of the question. Yeah, and I think that's a very good segue uh, into just the last topic I want to talk about before we move on to the other uh areas of interest in this podcast, but the Chinese reaction is clearly very important. Um, you know, we've been talking about the one China principle. For China, it's essentially a non-starter to have diplomatic relations with any country that doesn't recognize it. I mean, uh, you know, I saw an interesting report that, you know, was refloated from 2014 that outlined that before any conversation between a U.S. president and their Chinese counterpart, the American president verbally reiterates that the United States still accepts the one China policy before a conversation can take place on any other issue. So I think, you know, while there was a lot of of uh, alarmist commentary, uh, at least immediately when, uh, you know, it was reported that this was something that the Trump team had initiated. There were concerns that, you know, the one China policy was being thrown out itself um, and that this could lead to serious reprisal. But as you noted, um, the Chinese reaction was fairly muted, partly because Trump is still president-elect. Uh, but, you know, Prashant, I mean, a few of the concrete proposals that I think a lot of people who favor closer ties with Taiwan um, have put forward, you know, are things like a bilateral free trade agreement, which is something I believe that was very popular early in the Bush days uh, when Chen Shui-bian, another uh, DPP uh, president, was in charge in Taiwan, uh, when we also saw a broader decline in ties. Uh, but also, you know, uh, further arms sales to help Taiwan maintain its qualitative edge against a rapidly modernizing People's Liberation Army that still sees the Taiwan Strait as its primary war fighting scenario. You know, I, I think that gets forgotten a lot. We talk a lot about things like the South China Sea, the East China Sea for the PLA. It's still all about the Taiwan Strait. I mean, the stakes are really high here. Uh, you know, Shannon, just to bring you back in, since you wrote about the Chinese reaction, I mean, do you agree that, you know, China's essentially been caught a bit off guard by Trump and they're trying to figure this out? And that might lead to uh, a degree of instability in early 2017 when China either tries to test Trump over Taiwan or conveys a, you know, looks to convey a strong message that uh, you don't tinker with the one China policy and you don't get closer to Taiwan without serious consequences. Yeah, I think this is this is definitely going to be something to watch. Um, China cannot be happy about this phone call. As though you noted, they've been fairly muted about this. And I agree with Prashant that that is largely because Trump is not in office yet. And there's really no point in alienating a president before he even comes into office, uh, before you even really start engaging with him. What's important to remember is, again, a bit of domestic context for China. 2017 is an incredibly sensitive year for China domestically because they're going to be holding their 19th uh, 
party Congress in the late fall. And while this might not be the you know, once every 10 years major leadership change where we get a new general secretary of the party, it's still a fairly big deal. Uh, if, according to precedent, we should get five new members on the seven-member Politburo Standing Committee. Uh, and this is also, as Carrie Brown did a great job of outlining in our most recent magazine, this is a time for Xi Jinping to really put his ideological stamp on official party doctrine. So there's a lot of domestic political wrangling going on, and China does not want any headaches, uh, any foreign policy complications. But at the same time, the current leadership can absolutely not afford to be seen as weak on core issues. and. Taiwan is the core of the core, as the Chinese would say. <laughs> right. They've already been censoring discussion of this on social media because the Chinese public is so angry about this phone call and the government doesn't want to be forced into doing something that's rasher than they'd like to do. Mm -hmm. So what's really interesting is now we're seeing this sort of tug of war with both China and Taiwan trying to get the ear of the people on Trump's transition team, um, as far as we know who those people are, right? There's a ton of unknowns. We don't even have a secretary of state yet, much less an assistant secretary for Asia affairs. Um, but it's not looking great for China. If you look at the people whose names have come up as associated with Trump, we obviously have uh, Priebus as his chief of staff. He visited Taiwan in October 2015. He met with Tsai Ing-wen. He's been very supportive of Taiwan. Um, Stephen Yates, who is another Trump advisor, uh, he was apparently falsely reported as being in Taiwan and setting up the call, but he is planning on going to Taiwan soon after the call. He has business interests in Taiwan and a long-standing relationship with them. Um, Edward Fulner, another Trump advisor, founder of the Heritage Foundation, strongly pro-Taiwan. Mm -hmm. John Bolton, potential Secretary of State pick, who has previously, you know, even floated the idea of the U.S. restarting diplomatic relations with Taiwan. So these are all people that are going to be more amenable to outreach with Taiwan than from China. And right now, you're seeing reports that China is trying their best to prevent Tsai Ing-wen from having a stopover in New York City. Um, she will be traveling to Central America, mm -hmm. at least to Guatemala. Guatemala has confirmed the visit, um, possibly also to Nicaragua and El Salvador in early January, so before the inauguration, around the 11th and 12th. Um, and usually Taiwanese presidents make a stopover. You know, one of the oddities of the relationship, they can't make an official visit, but they can basically have you know, an 8, 10, 12 hour layover in a U.S. airport and then a bunch of U.S. officials and unofficial friends come and talk with them. So China is trying to pressure presumably the Obama administration, which would still have the final say, don't let this stopover happen. We don't want it to happen. They're presumably also pleading their case to the Trump transition team. Don't meet with Tsai Ing-wen. We don't want this to happen. At the same time, you can be positive that the Thai transition that Thai is reaching out to the transition team and saying, we would very much like to meet with someone. Um, you know, the Trump team, an anonymous source told the Washington Post, you know, highly unlikely that Trump himself, who of course lives in New York, would actually show up at the airport. But you could they could very well send a fairly high-ranking member of the transition team, um, you know, someone who's already been appointed to an official position and is kind of waiting to assume office along with Trump on January 20th. 
So that will be the the next tea leaf to watch for, to see who's kind of winning the battle for, as China would say, the hearts and minds of the Trump transition team. Uh, does Tsai Ing-wen stop by New York? If so, who does she meet with in early January? Right, right. And, you know, just uh, reading the, the readout of China's foreign ministry press conference on Monday was very interesting, but the spokesperson, without saying directly that they had spoken to the Trump transition team, very strongly implied that they had lodged solemn representations with the relevant party, uh, which I think implies that there was a message sent to the Trump team. Uh, but, you know, like you noted, some of the names there, I mean, they might take that message as a signal that what they're doing is working. It's upsetting China. And uh, clearly, you know, this is a way for the new administration to show that it won't be business as usual uh, as it was under the Obama administration and uh, things might change. Um, but anyways, I think uh, that was a great discussion on Taiwan. Um, obviously, this is something that I think all three of us will be watching closely since it's um, one of the first areas, I think, where the Trump administration might look to make some important changes changes. Um, but I do want to move on to the remainder uh, of this podcast where, you know, we can uh, talk a bit about first uh, Donald Trump's conversation with Nawaz Sharif in Pakistan, um, which again is an interesting conversation uh, based on the broader bilateral context. So, uh, you know, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast and there's a lot of writing um, at The Diplomat as well. But basically, since the killing of Osama bin Laden um, a few miles away from Islamabad in 2011, ties between the two countries, uh, Pakistan being a former, um, well, a major non-NATO ally of the United States, haven't been great. Uh, but here you have Trump talking to Nawaz Sharif. And uh, we should talk about the readout from the Pakistani side, uh, which was frankly pretty hilarious. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was also a huge break of protocol. Essentially, the Pakistani team put out a um, a readout of the call between Nawaz Sharif using very Trumpian language. Uh, it clearly sounded like partly a transcript of the call. Uh, you know, it had some very um, Trumpian embellishments, uh, let's say. Um, but, you know, here you had Trump telling Nawaz Sharif that he thought Pakistan was a fantastic country full of fantastic people, that he was ready to do anything he could to improve the peace, uh, you know, to improve the situation in South Asia. And obviously this raised a lot of eyebrows in India. Um, and, you know, I mean, I wrote about this and, uh, you know, some of the initial reactions to this readout were frankly pretty, um, you know, negative um, in the sense that, you know, this is something that could make conflict between India and Pakistan ever so slightly likelier, especially if, uh, you know, diplomats, as they're known to do, take this literally. I mean, Part of the problem with Trump, uh, you know, you've seen a lot of commentators make this point when it comes to the domestic political discourse in the United States is that Trump was taken uh, literally, uh, but not, um, you know, um, he was taken literally, but not seriously, um, but he should be not taken literally, but taken seriously instead. Uh, but, you know, if, if Trump's uh, statements to Pakistan are taken literally for what he said, I mean, there are signals that his team is looking to potentially um, mediate between India and Pakistan on Kashmir, which is something the Obama administration actually, uh, Prashant, this goes back to your point of, you know, in incoming administrations trying to change things when they come in. Uh, but not really getting there. Uh, the Obama administration has actually tried to do that. Uh, didn't really work out for them. It's something that India, in particular, opposes very strongly. So uh, yeah, I mean the uh, the Nawaz Sharif phone call is uh, really, I think, another example of um, 
you know, this campaign possibly uh, needing to get this president-elect into his State Department briefings and uh, outlining a bit of the context. And it's interesting because he's actually tweeted things about Pakistan that have been quite negative. I mean, he actually commented on the fact that Osama bin Laden was found in Pakistan and said some ally, uh, which is actually a fairly um, mainstream view in D.C., depending on who you ask. So um, I think, again, it's it, it, it's going to be interesting to see where the Trump administration takes its relations in South Asia, particularly also given uh, Trump's late campaign speech to a group of uh, you know, Indians who were in his favor here, uh, Indian Americans, I should say, rather, uh, who, uh, you know, strongly wanted to exercise influence over Trump to have him be more aggressive towards Pakistan as president. Um, but Prashant, I wanted to ask you, I mean, uh, any reactions to this phone call with Nawaz Sharif? What'd you make of it? Yeah, I think, you know, two points. Uh, you highlighted uh, these, I think, when you were giving your remarks. So um, I think one, uh, Trump, the, the extent to which Trump is uh, informed and briefed before he has these calls is, is a big concern even among some of his supporters. Um, I, I, I talked to a, a source close to the campaign and, and even they were saying that um, they've been getting concerns even from some uh, mainstream Republicans and some Republicans who are favorable to Donald Trump about uh, taking intelligence briefings. and you know, sort of doing the proper sort of uh, expertise and, and, and necessarily background work before engaging on these calls. That, that is one major concern. I think the second concern is, um, you know, it, it's no surprise, some of this been, has been reported publicly already, the, the transition team is, is not happy about the fact that the Pakistanis react, uh, you know, sort of released uh, their own version of, of events. I mean, as you, as you pointed out, it was almost written in Trump's voice, yeah. and you know, you very—I I don't recall any time where I've seen a readout being given and issued like that. I mean, usually the the readouts um, are are pretty dry, and they're focused on you know major points that were made by both sides, and usually the side that releases it focuses on what it said by itself, not what the other side said. You know, in this case, it was it was as you correctly pointed out. A significant departure from traditional diplomatic practice, but you know, I would say, with the Pakistan call, um, as with some of these other phone calls, what you have is the the systemic structural issue is the fact that uh, there are other countries abroad that re realize that Trump is an unconventional candidate, and they realize that they can use that to their advantage at times, and so if he's going to say these things on the call and express support for a certain government or regime, why would that regime and government not advertise that? Because the words of a U.S. president is very useful in terms of getting these regimes to have legitimacy, right? And kind of trap the Trump administration into a policy course that it hasn't even decided on. So that's, I think, the other thing to watch. Right. Um, I mean, the fact that Mike Pence actually reiterated the fact that Trump was looking to bring his deal-making um, skills to the Kashmir dispute, I think does suggest that uh, at least um, if it hadn't been the case before the Pakistan phone call, that ball is uh, in train right now and rolling. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out, particularly in light of, you know, high tensions right now in Kashmir between India and Pakistan along the line of control. So it could actually set off uh, India-US relations uh, onto a rocky start under Trump. But, you know, as you said, it's still early days. Um, we don't have uh, key positions and staff filled yet. So we'll see. Uh, things could obviously always change before January 20th. Um, Prashant, you know, moving on to the Philippines, um, a country that you watch very closely, obviously. Uh, here we come back to Rodrigo Duterte, a regular fixture on this podcast as of late. Um, obviously, Trump being elected was received positively by Duterte. He said he could see himself getting along with Donald Trump, uh, which I think some people uh, found a little bit humorous given the um, 
personality commonalities between the two leaders, shall I say. Um, but, uh, you know, obviously Trump and Duterte spoke and Trump, we don't know how formal this was, but essentially extended an, an invitation for the Philippine president to visit the United States, which he's actually said that he would never do. So, um, you know, what do you make of that phone call and that interaction between these two leaders? Where do you see that going? Yeah, a couple of things. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, Duterte is, is uh, some people have drawn parallels between Duterte and Trump, and I, I think it's true in one sense. Both of them have a very unconventional and loose way of, of speaking, uh, which they say endears themselves to their domestic population, but it also it confuses the rest of the world. Um, and in Duterte's case, I mean, he said some uh, pretty negative things about Trump earlier, uh, including the fact, you know, drawing a distinction between him and Trump regarding, you know, how bigoted they are, et cetera. But once Trump was elected, he sort of changed his tune and said, oh, he was really looking forward to speaking with Donald Trump. And uh, after the phone call, he's been highlighting two things. One, that Trump actually uh, gave him gave his drug war some support. And secondly, uh, that he was invited to the White House uh, next year. Um, you know, even if, if this is true, um, given the fact that you know, Trump has a record of saying things that he actually doesn't mean, um, and we haven't even had a sort of full cabinet team in place, let alone high-level Asian officials, I don't know whether any of this will be followed through on, um, but I would say that's kind of where the relationship is at now in the broad scale. The other thing that's interesting to watch is, um, and I mentioned this in, in, in the recent piece that I wrote about uh, the broader concerns regarding Trump, is the the business angle to all of this mm. and obviously it affects uh, you mentioned it with respect to india um there's an angle with respect to taiwan and there's an angle with respect to the philippines too a lot of this is kind of uh speculation more so than anything else but you know it is an important element in the discussion and that is you know the fact that uh trump does have some connections with a philippine developer jose antonio um with uh, sort of a, a tower construction in manila and he was named a special envoy to the U.S. by Duterte uh, in October. And, uh, you know, Antonio's already said that, you know, there's no conflict of interest in these roles, but that hasn't stopped, uh, you know, the media outlets from speculating about potential complications and conflict of interest. And I would say that's the other thing uh, to watch, because for both Duterte and Trump, there, there's this accusation that, special interests or key individuals are, are hijacking the relationship between two leaders with authoritarian tendencies. And a lot of this may be exaggerated, but it's nonetheless something which uh, I think will be reported more in the media, irrespective of whether it's true or not. Absolutely. Uh, there's been a big focus actually on reporting uh, just on the, you know, the overseas conflicts of interest that the Trump family and the Trump organization have more broadly. And I believe Trump said that he will make some announcement to how he's planning on addressing these conflicts of interest on the 15th of December. So it's possible that we'll learn more about this. Um, obviously, I don't think we've seen anything close to Trump actually coming close to divesting fully from his holdings, which would be probably the only thing that would free him from conflicts of interest more generally. But that's a very important point. I mean, uh, certainly one of the most unconventional things about Donald Trump, uh, leaving aside his uh, thoughts about world politics, is the fact that he has no previous experience in elected office or foreign policy and has had a career in business and entertainment. And how that will come to bear on his decision making in foreign policy, I think, really remains to be seen. So uh, that's a very good point. And, you know, another example of the conflict of interest is the meeting with Shinzo Abe when uh, Trump had his daughter Ivanka in the room, which also, you know, raised eyebrows immediately. So um, clearly something to watch. Um, 
Shannon, you've been very patient while we've been talking about the Philippines and Pakistan. So I wanted to give you the last word here. Um, and actually, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, I wrote about this briefly, but, you know, Trump, I mean, tweeted about China and he actually made his first statement about the South China Sea as president-elect. Um, and, you know, while it was a little bit, uh, while, while it was inaccurate, you know, I think it shows us something important. Um, and I actually pointed this out on Twitter, but the fact that, you know, Trump is sitting there with his Android phone, which is the one that sends out the tweets that come from him himself, you know, and he's tweeting about China. He's tweeting about uh, how angry he is at China for devaluing their currency, which, by the way, they don't do. They're propping their currency up right now and uh, building islands in the South China Sea without asking the United States uh, for permission. I think, you know, that shows that to an extent Donald Trump is thinking about China in his own time. He's thinking about the U.S.-China relationship. And while we don't know if there is a broader plan here, we also have comments from his advisors uh, like Stephen Yates, whom you mentioned on the record, saying that Trump is making the the U.S. relationship with China a close personal priority. So just, you know, I mean, once again, I, you know, you've spoken about this a bit, but if you had to give us a last word based on how this first month after the election has gone, what's your best guess for where U.S.-China ties are going to go? Um, I think Trump, he sees foreign policy very simplistically, um, almost in a schoolyard sense, where he thinks the U.S. is being bullied by other countries. And that's really the core message of his campaign when it comes to foreign policy. You know, make America great again. Don't let these other countries push us around. And right now, China is seen as one of the main offenders, uh, you know, pushing the United States around particularly for Trump because he thinks about economics more than strategic issues, um, you know, currency issues, which is a whole nother can of worms, but frequently comes up as a boogeyman in U.S.-China relations, uh, you know, restrictions on the Chinese market, things like that. Um, he thinks China is taking advantage of the U.S. So it really fits in his persona to say, I'm going to come in immediately get tough with China right off the bat and, um, you know, kind of stand up for America. What's interesting is that almost every single president has come into office with this strategy. I mean, if you go back to Jimmy Carter, who normalizes U.S.-China relations, Reagan in his campaign said, we're going to ditch that. We're going to re-recognize Taiwan. Um, and then George H.W. Bush is an exception. He was based in China for many years as before there was an official ambassador. He was kind of the head of the U.S. presence there. He came to office wanting better relations with China. But then Clinton, you know, basically ran on standing up to the butchers of Beijing after the incidents in Tiananmen Square. Um, actually, George W. Bush also came into office pledging that he was going to be tougher on China. Um, Obama is really an exception. He came in to office saying, we're going to talk with China. We're going to do outreach to them. But most presidents have come to office with this sense that I'm going to get tough on China and I'm going to fix the U.S.-China relationship and give us back the upper hand. And then about a year into office, um, they realize this doesn't work, right? Like you can't just say, I'm going to get tough on China and be tough on China and not be willing to compromise on any issues. You won't get anywhere on anything. Um, so my prediction is that we're returning to this old pattern and we're going to have a very rough year in U.S.-China relations in 2017 as Trump tries to, to be tough on China and stand up to China and China tries very hard to send a signal that it won't tolerate uh, certain red lines being crossed. Um, and then eventually, hopefully, things will settle back down uh, into a more 
normal relationship as both sides figure out how to engage with each other and how far the status quo can go. The X factor is that there's a general sense in DC that the status quo doesn't work anymore in US-China relations, that China has grown too fast and come too far, and that the US needs to change its fundamental approach. Um, so there is more of a danger now than there was, you know, under Reagan or Clinton or George W. Bush, that we will actually see a fundamental turn toward a very icy U.S.-China relationship because people in D.C. are advocating for that before Trump even came into office. Well, there you have it from the editor-in-chief of The Diplomat. I expect a chilly year in uh, U.S.-China ties in 2017, which I think is really likely. But I think the point you made earlier about you know the 19th Party Congress and the domestic considerations in China is also interesting here. And could actually, uh, you know, we could get surprised from China, I mean, how they react or how they choose to react to Trump's moves. I mean, certainly I was expecting a little bit more forceful of a statement. Um, I mean, we don't know what they said privately to the Trump team about the, the side call. But um, I think, you know, overall, I agree with you that it's going to be be a chillier year than we've been used to in some time in U.S.-China ties. Um, so this was a longer podcast episode than usual, but I think that makes up for the fact that we haven't done one of these in a few weeks. Uh, just to give you a preview of what's to come, uh, Prashant and I will be back soon to talk a bit about U.S. defense policy and probably to reflect more broadly on the Obama administration's legacy in the Asia-Pacific as uh, as they prepare to leave office in January. And actually, this is a good area to plug our latest magazine issue, which has a cover article from Bates Gill uh, evaluating the legacy of the Obama administration in Asia more broadly. Uh, we talked about a lot of our articles in this podcast, so I'll actually link to those in the description so you can uh, read up on what the three of us have had to say about the call and uh, some of the other issues here. But um, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.